You're listening to the Christian Humanist Radio Network, christianhumanist.org. This is the Christian Humanist Podcast, a weekly discussion of theology, philosophy, literature, art, and other things that human beings do well. And now your hosts, David Grubbs, Nathan Gilmore, and Michael Farr. Down heavens the rain from a clear blue sky. Down trickles a tear on a youthful face. Feeling in haste and wondering why. But struggles the sun from a wounded night. Out picture a And welcome to another episode of the Christian Humanist Podcast. I'm your host for today. My name is Michael Farmer. I'm an assistant professor of English at Crown College in St. Bonifacius, Minnesota. Uh, I am also a little bit out of practice. We haven't done a uh, Christian Humanist Podcast episode anyway <laughs> in uh, in several weeks, so I, I can I can no longer remember the rhythms of how this works. Uh, joining me today, uh, Nathan Gilmore, who's an associate professor of English at. See, uh, this just goes to show you how out of practice I am. Emanuel College in Franklin Springs, Georgia. I almost called it Franklin Springs College in Emanuel, Georgia. Nathan saved me from myself. <laughs> I'm doing all right, Michael. It's the summer. I've been taking the kids to the lake to swim. Life is good. And from Central Christian College in McPherson, Kansas, it's David Grubbs, who is a professor of English. <laughs> yes. Yes, I am. It's it, well, it doesn't say it on my door. It just has my name on the door, but it should say it on my door. He's humble. He refuses to be defined by his social role. Yeah, I guess. Or something. Or something. Well, as we announced in our last episode, we will no longer be addressing listener feedback at the beginning of the show. Not so much for these because of these summer shows, but because of our scheduling in the fall. We do have a number of listener emails that we would like to address, and we will be doing so in our August episode. So if you wrote in and are disappointed not to hear us reading it now, uh, I'm sorry. We'll spend much more time on them when we do the full episode. And if you haven't written in yet, feel free to, we will be addressing that, as I said, in our August episode. This is our June episode, even though, as I'm sure you noticed, it's going live on July 1st. Sorry. (laughs) Uh, We've also had a number of Christian Humanist Profiles episodes happen already this summer, and uh, we have a number more scheduled. Nathan, would you like to make your big announcement? Uh, Yes. The next Christian Humanist Profiles episode uh, will be with none other than Dr. Stanley Hauerwas of Duke Divinity School, uh, great influence on me. Uh, this is sort of my dream interview. Uh, we'll be talking about his most recent book called Approaching the End, which is a collection of essays on eschatology and Christian theology. So I'm definitely looking forward to that conversation, and I hope you listeners will enjoy the encounter. Are you hoping that he'll like you so much that he asks you to open a a fried chicken franchise or something with them. <laughs> Stan and Nate's. Yeah, you know, Michael, I have a lot of thoughts uh, in my day-to-day life, and that's not one I've ever had. So, 
Now, now seems like as good a time as any to to say that if if you've enjoyed the increased frequency of our profile shows, uh, much of the thanks is due to uh, our former listener, now member of the uh, Empire, Kristen Philippic, who is doing our booking for that show. So I feel like we haven't thanked her publicly yet. So thanks, Kristen. You're awesome. So anyway, there's more of that coming. Today's episode, though, is about uh, Mark Hurd, who is a, I would say, obscure, quasi-forgotten singer-songwriter oh. from the 70s, 80s, and early 90s. In a perfect world, everyone on the planet would be familiar with his music, but I suspect uh, most of our listeners don't know too much about him. David, you are the person we have traditionally asked about biographical and historical stuff. What can you tell us about who Mark Hurd was and why he might be important to the history of so-called Christian music? Oof, this one was tough. There's apparently one biography about him. They don't have a Kindle version. Um, there's a website that has... Uh, his lyrics, several archived articles, things like that, um, to to kind of preserve his um, his footprint in the music scene, or his fingerprint, uh, <laughs> or fingerprint. Yeah, F- fingerprint was his the name of his the record label he founded. It was a, a terrible pun joke. Sorry. G- go on, yeah, David. Yeah, you're literally the only person that laughed at that. Um, mhlp.rru.com. Uh, is uh, will get you to the Mark Hurd Lyric Project, which also has other stuff on it. That's my main source for um, things I know about him. Um, there's an article about him on Wikipedia, but up at the top it says, this doesn't cite sources, what gives? So, <laughs> okay. <laughs> um, so, what little I'm pretty confident with. Uh, he's from Macon, Georgia, so yay, Georgia guy. Uh, he was a musician, also a music producer. Uh, he seems to have been gotten into the Christian music scene fairly early, uh, in its inception, Christian, the Christian rock scene, at least, um, with, uh, the Jesus people movement and all go, go listen to the Christian rock episode. Just go listen to that one. And then this one, <laughs> apparently, apparently he's connected to Larry Norman and a lot of those really kind of early days, um, uh, Christian rock guys. Right. And, and well, when I was reading around David, I, I thought I remember reading something where he ran into Larry, Larry Norman at Labrie. Mm. Labrie, the, uh, the, the place in Switzerland run by, None other than uh, CHP's great rival, Francis Schaefer. I think CHP wishes it was big enough to consider uh, Francis Schaefer its big rival. Yeah, we're we're not exactly big enough to be the McCoys here. (laughs) (laughs) We're we're not big enough to start arching Dr. Venture just yet. (laughs) Um... Anyway, so so yeah, apparently Labrie, the seventies, Larry Norman, all that kind of thing. He was he was in that in that kind of milieu, but apparently uh, his his projects never really translated into mainstream success. He recorded some albums. Um, they got that they were appreciated by the smart kinds of people who we would identify as having good taste in music at the time. But the radios didn't like him so much, 
And yeah, they just didn't seem to sell well. Um, he also produced music. Uh, and his his production uh, influence is pretty widespread as well. He produced a lot of a lot of people that I had heard of, and when when you hear that, um, then you 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 know that he must have been big because I know almost no one. Um, Vigilante's Love, which I've heard of, because well, you know, Cousins Johnny, <laughs> Athens, Georgia, yeah. <laughs> Yeah, well, yeah. and also one of them directed his dissertation. <laughs> <laughs> directed by a vigilante. Uh, Rich Mullins, <laughs> Phil Keggy, um, you know, people I'd heard of, which which was pretty awesome. Uh, he had something of a uh, comeback in the late 80s, early 90s. But then in 92 was performing at the Cornerstone Music Festival that Jesus People USA puts on up in Illinois, I think. And uh, after his performance, uh, died of a heart attack. And yeah, he had the heart attack on on stage and continued the concert. Yes, yeah. Well, walked walked mm. off stage, went to the hospital, and passed away. Um. After that, there was a lot of uh, uh, the, there's a there's a scan of his memorial service and the. Uh, the list of songs and performances at it, it looks like, looks like a who's who of, of, you know, the best of Christian music at that era, which is, which is kind of cool. So it, it shows, you know, he, he might not have been somebody that everybody heard, heard of, but the right people had heard of him, if that makes sense. Mm-hmm. So yeah. Including that's, oddly that's enough, Olivia Newton-John. Like on one of the tribute albums that came out, Olivia Newton-John covers How to Grow Up Big and Strong, which I, I don't know what connection there is between <laughs> Olivia Newton-John and Mark Hurd, but uh, they're, they're probably his most famous fan, whatever that says. Mm-hmm. That, that's yeah, that was that was yeah, that's interesting. Uh, what, am, what am I what am I not including that you want to toss in there, Michael? I, I'm surprised you did not mention that he went to the University of Georgia. Oh, he was yeah. a, a journalism yeah. major at UGA. I mean, lo- long before our time, of course, since he died when we were. I, well, Watch I was it. I was ten years old. I don't want to. I don't want to talk about how old you guys were. Not much older than that. Anyway, yeah. So he he like us is a University of Georgia graduate, and and uh, after after Labrie, he he lived in in Glendale, California, and I think um, we're, we're mostly talking about his. Uh, greatest hits album High Noon and, and, and a lot of the songs mm-hmm. on High Noon have a very California um, mentality I think in a lot of the lyrics there's a lot of descriptions of, of Los Angeles and the surrounding areas but we'll get to that in a little while so the songs that make up High Noon come from Heard's final three albums 1990's Dry Bones Dance 1991's Second Hand and 1992's Satellite Sky I don't know if those are Heard's best albums. They are certainly very different from the ones he was making in the 1980s, which we'll, I, I can talk about those in just a minute. But Nathan, you had so much fun describing musical sound in our folk and country episode that <laughs> I feel bad if I didn't let you do that again. So tell us about the Mark Heard sound, at least as it appears on the songs on High Noon. Yeah, that's one way to put it. <laughs> um, well, one of the things about my own uh, sort of music consumption habits is that unlike when I read a book or unlike when I watch a movie, I can't seem to stay focused on just the album when I'm doing when I'm listening to music. So uh, my my impressions of it are largely, you know, from 
across the room while I'm washing dishes or, you know, something like that. So, uh, one of the, one of the things that I noticed is, you know, first of all, uh, you can hear a lot of the instrumentation choices, uh, that ring similar, I guess, uh, to a lot of the stuff you associate with sort of the late, early, late eighties, early nineties, uh, the the phrase that I jotted down in my notes is, I mean, it has sort of a traveling Wilbury sound. It's something you might hear <laughs> on a Roy Orbison album or a Tom Petty album. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, uh, mm-hmm. like Michael said, that that very sort of California guitar sound. Uh, it's got, you know, sort of country fiddle on some of them, even an accordion in the background on some of it. Uh, you know, it's fairly straightforward, you know, rock instrumentation uh, with a few devi- deviations like that. The vocal style, uh, you know... Probably a little bit more emotive than I prefer. I mean, I like singers who growl more than uh, who <laughs> pine. Uh, but, I mean, you know, as, as far as that sound, I mean, it really, really works with what he's doing lyrically. So, uh, Michael, I mean, you, you worked as a, a music critic for a number of years. So, I mean, uh, what am I missing in there that you would want to add? Uh, the first two of those albums, Dry Bones Dance and Secondhand, and the album High Noon is very poorly organized. It is not a chronological order. They just kind of throw the songs in there, uh, apparently at random, so it can take some time to figure out what comes from what. But the, <laughs> those first two albums are entirely acoustic. There are, there are no, as far as I know, electric instruments on them. Oh, okay. Satellite Sky has electric instrumentation. Um, so so he, he, they're all folk rock albums, for sure. But mm-hmm. he, he's moving toward, I, I, would, I would say Satellite Sky has the more traveling Wilbury sound. And I think that's actually a good way to describe it. I, I think it's that kind of glossy folk rock, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, the Jeff Lynne sound, you might, you might yeah, think of. Yeah, yeah. Um, the other thing is uh, Heard's instrument of choice on these three albums is a mandolin. And, huh. and, and he played the mandolin himself. If you look at uh, pictures of him from the 90s, he's generally playing the mandolin. And in particular on Satellite Sky, he's playing an electric mandolin, which is a, a, a bit of a different sound for that instrument it's just as high and plinky but it's a little more <laughs> oh i don't know electric i guess is the the best thing you, you know it's the difference between an electric guitar and an acoustic guitar this is an electric mandolin so mm-hmm. um I, I don't know how much of a difference that makes from composing on a mandolin versus composing on a guitar they're not entirely dissimilar instruments but i i would say that that mandolin is the most distinctive part of his sound during this era in the mm-hmm. 80s, he was making um, much more what generally gets called AOR, album-oriented rock. So if you think of big, glossy radio rock um, from the 80s, that's what his 80s albums sound like. I don't mm-hmm. find them nearly as effective. I think they've dated much more poorly uh, because folk rock just doesn't go out of style as quickly as pop rock does because pop changes faster than folk, I guess. I don't know mm-hmm. how to yeah. explain that. Um, so this, this was a fairly big change for him from what he was doing before this. And in fact, the album he put out in, I think it was 87 was the last album before Dry Bones Dance. And it was called uh, tribal opera under the uh, pseudonym Ideola. And that is a very, very strange, very eighties, synthy, <laughs> angular, uh, pop rock album. Uh, that sounds mm. absolutely nothing like anything on a high noon except his voice, which, you know, kind of remains the same. Mm-hmm. 
David, did anything grab you about the sound of the, of these songs? Um. Oh, I not really. I mean, they're 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 genres that I'm that I'm so not familiar with. When uh, when you when you guys mentioned Tom Petty, I'm like, oh yeah, yeah, Tom Petty. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> Though he's he's uh the he's got he's got a little bit of kind of lazy Tom Pettiness in in the vocals, but it's it's certainly clearer. You know, he's not mumbly um, <laughs> like Tom Petty was. He, he's but very the, yearning, like like Nathan said. Mm-hmm. I think that's a good description of his vocals. Well, it's mm-hmm. it's like it's like a little Tom, it's like a little lazy Tom Petty and a little sweet John Denver. Yeah, um, and 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 Michael, you you can slap me as soon as I say this out loud, but <laughs> the the thought that keep kept coming to my head is, oh my gosh, I'm listening to Richard Marks again. Ouch. <laughs> Oh man, I don't know what I don't I don't know if Herd can hear you from the afterlife, but if, if he can, I would I would uh, I would be careful not to walk under any ladders or anything. Because what I was going to say is this move to folk rock, um, uh-huh. I think, is is a bid for authenticity. It's a, it's a bid for something timeless and real or whatever. I, I you know I mean listeners who heard our episode on country music, and for that matter. I think we had a whole episode on authenticity last fall. That's how quickly I forget what we do. We'll know yes, that we I'm, I'm skeptical of that of that idea, but I think mm-hmm. I think that's part of what he's doing. I think I think he's he's trying to move away from something ephemeral and poppy into something that feels earthier and mm-hmm. feels um, realer. Now, which is a very early '90s thing to do. Sure, sure. And like I said, it's still pretty glossy. I mean, this isn't this; these aren't rough songs, with mm-hmm. the uh, with the single exception of uh, "What Kind of Friend," which is just a demo on him, of him on the piano. What kind of friend could pull a knife when it's him or you and his kids need shoes? What kind of friend would do you in when the bomb goes off and the shelters hills? What kind um, of friend? The, the rest are, are well produced. You know, he's 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 not he's he's not a he's not a slouch. I mean, he knows what he's doing and he, he makes it sound good. Um, but but I, I think I think what he's going for is something quote unquote real. Mm-hmm. And that's no big surprise either, because again, just reading around a little bit, prepping for the episode, I mean, he has at least as many production credits as he does recording credits. Right. And he, uh, his, his, I don't know how much this will mean to you guys, but his production technique was to use as old equipment as he could find. He, he, you know, he, this was before the days of digital recording. He would certainly not have used digital recording. He used uh, ribbon mics and really old fashioned stuff to get, uh, to get a, a warmer sound, I think is how he would probably put it. Although mm-hmm. I don't want to put words in a dead man's mouth. Mm-hmm. Well, he had what uh, we might charitably call a strained relationship with the Christian music industry. Um, David, given what you know about the man and his music, where did that conflict w- lie? Um, why why did he never quite fit in in that industry? Well, the big, you know, not wanting to put words in a dead man's mouth, which is unwise, as you say. Um, uh, ironically, by the way, the big song from uh, that Ideola record was "Go and Ask the Dead Man." 
<laughs> so maybe we should just go and ask the dead man. Right. <laughs> and and we're also three guys who wrote dissertations on dead people's novels. Yes. So and you know. and poems. Sorry. Woo. So we're speaking for him. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> we'll be speakers for the dead, like Ender. Um, Life in the Industry, a musician's diary, is an article by Mark Hurd that was published in Image Magazine in 92, summer 92. So, you know, this is, pro- these are not his last words, but this is, this was his last year. So, you know, I, I guess we can take this as kind of his last official, official word on he, on himself as an artist and a producer on his career and on the industry that he had this kind of love, hate, hate, love, hate, 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 hate relationship. with. <laughs> um, it basically boils down to, uh, vignettes, um, in, in particular, a vignette in which he's called by a, uh, a representative of the industry uh, who wants to make sure that what he's producing in this album that he's producing at the moment, that the that the production that he's that he's uh, doing is is going to end up in a product that will be played on the radios. And the industry guy uh, basically instructs uh, Mark Hurd and the musicians to boil the lyrics down to a, to the kind of a lowest doctrinal common denominator, keep it positive, nothing fancy, nothing ethnic. And <laughs> well, the, eth- the ethnic music he's talking about is like stand-up bass. Yes. Because <laughs> oh, there's so many, uh, you know, so many ethnicities defined by that, you know, like the, the, the Patagonian Native Americans and the, the tip of Argentina with their, their stand-up bases. Um, I, I think, I think my, my impression reading that has always been uh, too ethnic meant too Jewish. Is that what the, is that what that meant? That, that, is, that is how I've always read that. Now, maybe, maybe I've just been reading too much Saul Bellow. <laughs> I've, okay. I guess I never under, uh, I guess I never connected stand-up bases with, you know, being Jewish. But, oh well. Anyhow, uh, these are the, this is the kind of advice that he's getting from he's getting from the the uh, the industry, and so what he does is he goes he he takes the artists in there and says, okay, what's the stupidest lyrics that you've got? And they have a chorus, and then they write some stupid verses to go with it, and then they do the most stupid, basic, predictable instrumentation they possibly can, and he turns it in. And the reaction that he gets from the industry rep guy is, "This is awesome! We didn't know you could do kinds of this kind of stuff." Let's take a <laughs> let's take a break to hear a sample from the song from the Play Stupider sessions. And uh, while he doesn't say it in the journal, the um, the the song is "Faithful" by uh, Randy Stonehill. And in my simple way. Down for me, and he's faithful to 
Okay, so now now you've got some idea of, of the result of the play stupider sessions. <laughs> okay. You know, I, I, I assume that at some point we're gonna be paying some playing some kill clips of Mark Hurd not being stupider. Yes. Okay, awesome. So look forward to that, dear listener. Um He resented this. I I, I think that that's actually kind of underplaying it to say he resented it. Um because as you read the article, it well the on, the authenticity that you guys talked about seems to be his main thing. Um, at one point, he he describes uh, going to give a concert, and the guy and and the, kind of his host for the concert praying beforehand, asking God to use Mark Hurd as a mouthpiece so that so that no one even notices Mark, and and just hears God. Which really, really irritates Mark because he's like, well, why would we even need a musician then? Uh, because he's uh, – one of the things that he wants to add is the the reality of messy, uncomfortable ups and downs of just real human experience. He wants all of that to get in there. He doesn't want it smoothed out. So for Mark Hurd, authenticity – is is a big thing and the way he would bring it into the uh when he was producing not just as an artist in his lyrics and in his his own performance but also in his his producing he tried to get that in there um not just by using the old equipment like you mentioned michael but also by um refusing to piece together the vocal performances from different takes hmm. So that uh, it it says in the article that he always kept the first take and that he always tried to use a single intact take instead of piecing together the best pieces uh, of of individual takes into one kind of seamlessly perfect one. He wanted the sharps and the flats and the voice breaking. He wanted the imperfections in there because the imperfections were the real thing. And he wanted that in. So that's uh, that's the kind of artist that he was, and that's the friction that he had with the industry. They wanted smoothed, smooth, polished um, music, nothing unexpected, and that the listener would never hear anything that made them in the slightest bit unsettled, uncomfortable, or even you know, to encounter something unexpected. So, yeah, that's that's why things were tense. But nonetheless, you see, you know, artists who who did have success, um, you know, people like Rich Mullins and stuff like that who who admired him greatly. So it's not as if he just, you know, shook shook the dust off of his sandals and said, you guys burn. Um, apparently he he still remained connected in some ways um, to continued performing live, continued producing, albeit disgruntled. Mm-hmm. And, and he, he's in that kind of unfortunate liminal position that so many people who want to pursue art within the Christian rock world get in, which is his music is much too religious to, to, to be put out on a secular label and, and for him to, to, to run with that crowd. I just, I, 
there, there's there's too much faith in it for it to be wildly popular outside of Christian music. But on the other hand, mm-hmm. this is this is this is music that that refuses to come to easy answers. Right. R- right. Well, I mean, and 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 let's let's be fair to the contemporary, you know, to the to the Christian music industry that he was looking at. It's not as if as if the secular music industry and the radio market there was looking for anything less polished, less expected, less stupid, right? Sure. I mean, that, I mean, you know, you 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 could you could probably go to to any old radio station at that time and encounter lyrics that aren't really going to make you think hard. They might be pointing you at different answers, but you're still not going to have to reach far to get them. Right. <laughs> I mean, he's 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 an Ecclesiastes guy. Yeah, no, I think that's a that's an excellent way to think of him. And so he's never really going to feel at home anywhere because you know, that's what Ecclesiastes is about. <laughs> one one of the great songs of his that didn't show up on um on high noon for some reason is this this kind of blues rock number called worry too much where he just mm-hmm. lists off uh lists off everything in the world that makes him nervous and, and you know it's it's big stuff uh and i i think that kind of gets at the heart of who he is about as, as an artist he's he's you know walker percy talks about the novelist as being a canary in the coal mine for society he he kind of feels things he's so sensitive that he feels things before uh before the rest of the world does and i i think i think hurd is is very much in that tradition he 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 kind of gets to be miserable for the rest of us and you know we ignore him at our peril mhm yeah, people telling me worries too much. Well, he he's he's uh, he's kind of, he's he's a Jeremiah um, or a weeping psalm um, in a culture that at that you know in a Christian music culture at that time that you know wanted nothing but you know clap your hands, all you people. Right, Psalm one fifty over and over and over again. <laughs> Don't even do one forty eight, one forty nine, just one fifty. <laughs> yep. Yeah. No. 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 Seventy three and no Psalm twenty two unless it's only about Jesus. Right. And certainly no Psalm ninety. <laughs> yeah. And I, I don't listen. Wow. To we it. just went Bible nerd in a hurry, didn't we? <laughs> I, I I don't listen to enough current Christian rock to know that if if anything's actually any different now. Um, but it would be nice if there were a space for a person like him. Maybe the, maybe the internet makes that a little more possible. Mm-hmm. Well, I discovered High Noon, uh, moving on to actually talk about the songs, um, when I was 15 years old. And part of my attraction to it was the way it seemed to describe the essence of adult life in a way that was poetic but not romantic. Uh, as an adult now, I am tempted to say that I was right when I was 15, but it may just be that I've fashioned my adulthood around these songs. So, <laughs> Nathan, once again, you're going to save me from myself. Do songs like Nod Over Coffee and love is not the only thing, say something profound about what it is to be a married 30-something. What I like about both of these songs is that they deal with distraction uh, as a reality within, uh, like you said, I mean, adult relationships. Uh, One of the things about a relationship that lasts uh, not weeks but years uh, is that you never exist alone in the world. Uh, and one of the things that, you know, struck me about Nod Over Coffee is that uh, 
you know, the, the refrain of the song that, you know, the... This really is, I mean, the rhythm of adult relationships, right? I mean, uh, you know, one of your phrases, Michael, that I always refer, return to is that everything is guilt. <laughs> uh, and, you know, this is the, you know, the nature of it, right? Because, I mean, when you pull yourself away from work, you know full well that you're letting people down that depend on you there. When you go back to work, you know full well you're letting people down back at the house. Uh, and, you know, that is the... I, I like his phrase. I mean, the curse of the second hand. Uh, it, it's so that song, you know, I mean, is is a nice reflection. I think poetic is a good word to to put on it um, about the fact that you know uh, you're never satisfied with the way that things are going, uh, but you still keep going with it. Uh, the other one that you noted, uh, love is not the only thing. Uh, once again, I mean, it, it's one of those things that has to do with duration. And one of the things that uh, I think that I heard implicitly in your question, Michael, is, you know, how does this differ from your sort of teenage love song that, you know, gets played at, you know, the homecoming dance? Uh, <laughs> and the answer is that, I mean, you know, this is the sort of thing that isn't uh, the teenage flame where two people who are bored discover that they have body chemistry and emotions uh, but it is, you know, what you discover only after you've lived in the midst of it for 13 years. And I just use that number because my 13th anniversary is a, a month from tomorrow. So, um, yeah. you know, and this one, I mean, you know, the uh, first of all, I imagine Michael will put a, a link to the YouTube playlist that we're working off of on the show notes. But uh, one of the things that, you know, again, struck me here is... To read another 20 pages, too bored to see the anchor man's face, too young to bear the burdens of the ages, too old to keep an innocent face. And again, I mean, you know, it, it, it really is one of those things where uh, philosophically, you know, you can say in the abstract that the everydayness of human existence is always in tension with the imminence and possibility of death. Uh, and that sounds very Heideggerian and intelligent. Uh, but this, in a more poetic way, I mean, just kind of reflects on the fact that uh, ultimately to human relationships, uh, time is not your friend, uh, but it's also really not your enemy. It's just kind of the environment in which relationships happen. Uh, so I think both of these, Michael, I mean, are, are excellent meditations on duration in human relationships. I mean, is that the sort of thing that, that you sort of bring forth from these songs as well, or did you have something else in mind? Oh, I think, I think that is absolutely true. But what I was thinking about is the way he, he takes the mundanity of ordinary adult life. I mean, not of our coffee is about saying goodbye to your wife in the morning before you both drive off to work. Mm -hmm. it's, it's the smallest, silliest, most meaningless thing that he somehow fills with meaning. Mm -hmm. Right, and, and he talks about life as being just this crushing series of disappointments. If I weren't so alone and afraid, oh, they might pay me what I worth. Oh, but if 
I mean, is there a is there a better line about what it is to be an adult working? Mm. Yeah. The line that kills me from "Love is not the only thing." You see me like a prism sees a candle. I'm scattered into different views. Reality is happening at random. You're warming up the yellows and The idea here is that somebody who loves you looks into you and sees things that are there, right? The, 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 the rainbow is always in the prism, but it's not the, it's the candle that brings it out. Hmm. And so, so love ends up being the ability to look at something that is transparent, right? I mean, uh, a, a prism, if you just look at it without a candle behind it, it's just a, a, piece of glass albeit an interestingly shaped one but Mm -hmm. love is about being able to look at the banality of everyday existence and see something beautiful and and divine in it right because with a rainbow you always have um you always have that echo of the noah story Mm -hmm. so i've I've been i've been listening to those two songs in particular since i was 15 and i i I always (laughs) thought i always thought oh so that's what it's like to be an adult it's 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 not exciting Mm -hmm. i mean in not over coffee he's spending most of his day on the interstate it seems yeah (laughs) and yet there's something if you live in los angeles that's probably true (laughs) right right or atlanta for that matter Uh, yeah but but um but there's something sustaining in it either way those songs aren't sad songs no they're not they're not well, there. I mean, especially the um, "Not Over Coffee" is just. I, I love the way. When you're, I don't know. When you're, when you're young, you want everything to be epic. Everything's got to be big to go along with the way you feel it. Mm-hmm. But. Then things happen and you are 30 something years old and you're married and you don't have time and you don't have time for Epic. <laughs> yeah. You don't have the money for Epic because they don't pay you what you're worth. You don't have the, yeah, you don't have the time or the money or the energy for Epic. But it doesn't mean you don't feel the Epic. But you, but you feel this kind of, what you feel is, is a, is, is, is the discontent that you don't have the time and the money and the energy. You know, for the thing that's still still real, and I and I think that the, I think the, the the younger eye looks at that scene and says, ah, clearly here is a scene in which all the love is gone because it's no longer, you know, in super saturated color, you know, with a you know with the amazing soundtrack, mm-hmm. but you know, but it's not like that <laughs> all the time, and that doesn't mean the love is gone. Right, right. There's there's a sense in which the love you see in Not Over Coffee is the deepest kind of love. Yeah. Even if in Love Is Not the Only Thing, you have that that last verse where he, where he talks about going up on the roof and pretending pretending they're new to the city, and I, th- I think the lyric is "pretend we're foreigners and drink the city in." Mm-hmm. So so there's this idea that sometimes sometimes we have to pretend to be romantics even though we're not. 
<laughs> the, the other the other remarkable thing about Not Over Coffee to me is is he he kind of points to the sentimental answer. If we could see with wiser eyes. What is good and what is sad and what is true uh-huh. Till it would not be enough Never be enough And then he completely denies that that's the solution. It, it's not a matter of seeing things the right way. Because then he says it, it still, it would not be enough. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Oh, I, mean, I, love, well, I, I love get that song. Yeah, but isn't that so Ecclesiastes? Yeah. Yeah, it is. <laughs> you know, and, and yeah, all, all, all is vanity. Not because none of it is, is ultimately worthwhile, but because there's just not enough time. And it'll all pass. What, what human being can't relate to this song? And yet, you know, he dies in yeah. relative obscurity. <laughs> what are you going to do, right? Get someone to cover it and pretend like it's new. Pierce Pettis, um, who was actually playing with her the night he died, uh, the night he had the heart attack that killed him. It was actually about a month after Cornerstone when he died. He didn't die that night. But uh, anyway, Pierce Pettis covers a Mark Hurd song on every album he does now. Mm. Um, and, and I think Not Over Coffee was, was the big one. He released it as a single and everything. But still, you know, it could never be enough. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> well, we will nod at Mark Hurd. Yeah. Well, I guess um, that's kind of what this episode is. Is this, this is your nod at Mark Hurd? Yeah, we're nodding over coffee. Yeah. Oh. Well, it may just be that he died so young himself. He was, I think, forty-two when he died, um, and he died unexpectedly because you don't expect a forty-two-year-old just to die, drop dead of a heart attack. But yeah. the songs on the songs that are collected here on High Noon seem to me to be very focused on death. Um, David, what does what does Hurd have to say about death and grief and the afterlife and all those other related subjects? Um, I mean, it, it, just to kind of tag on to what we already brought up with "Not Over Coffee." Um, "Not Over Coffee" is what really happens because time's winged chariot hurries at our back, right? Um, Marvell's version, you know, time's winged chariot, therefore, you know, eagles and rolling the world up into a ball and all that kind of stuff. Um, yeah, that's very teenagery. Not over coffee is what happens because time's winged chariot hurries at our back. There's no time left. And, you know, it's, it's all counting down and it's counting down to zero. So that's probably the first way that, that many of these have to do with death. They're not so much about the moment of death as they are living, feeling like everything is slipping out, slipping between your fingers. In, in the time it takes to sing a song about the curse of the second hand, three more minutes have ticked by. Yes. <laughs> yeah. You know, it's, it's so it's 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 the death by degrees. I, I, I don't I don't know what you call it, but it's it is that kind of memento mori. That very kind of healthy medieval, um, always be conscious, always know, you know, the time is passing like sand through the hourglass and all the rest of it. <laughs> um, so that's that's probably the first way I see it. Um, the other way 
is the apocalyptic. Um, he's not just Ecclesiastes. He's also Ezekiel and Jeremiah. Um, he's also the prophet that weeps over destruction um, or or a, a, a culture that seems to be slouching that way. At least that's my, you know, my read on, you know, another day in limbo is, you know, one day this one day this dead land will be restored, right? Um, you know, the, what's the line? So that that's that section there just you know it has this idea again of you know being in a in a a culture of 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 waiting of of a kind of death in life of waiting and waiting for a change um waiting for a change to come the same kind of thing shows up in the dry bones dance um again you've got negative uh Kind of negative verses, like the uh, the second verse. Brave new scarecrows. I'm not entirely sure what they are, but um, we're waiting for them to hand us cigarettes and blindfolds, and we all lined up, you know, line up for the firing squad. And then paper fills the cracks of the wailing wall, so we're all lining up against the wall to get shot. And the, you know, very very violent imagery, imagery, very, um, you know, death in life imagery. But then you have. Every now and then I seem to dream these dreams where dead ones live and hurt ones heal, touching that miraculous circumstance where the blind ones see and the dry bones dance. And that's Ezekiel. Um, the idea that even in the destruction, restoration will come, a change will come, the bones will dance. But it's such so, a it's such a modest hope for the miracle, isn't it? It's 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 not. This is going to happen. It's not even. Mm-hmm. I hope this is going to happen. It's every now and then I seem to dream that these things are going to happen. Yeah. Well, but I mean, I think again, that's Mark. You know, that that's that's Mark Hurd. If he if he's if he's the mostly Ecclesiastes and Jeremiah, a a hint of a change that will come. You know he's 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 like, you know he's like Job about in in I think the second round of of his debate with his friends, in which he asks the question whether the dead will live again instead of just saying they won't. You know, but even that is kind of a hopeful direction. You know, I, I'm going to take any hope in this desert. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and. You know, I, I I think that's that's recognizing that's recognizing reality too. That you know, just because I think Christianity presents a hope and presents a hope of restoration at the end, it doesn't mean that we always feel that at the forefront of our hearts. Sometimes it just seems like a dream. 
And we hope it'll be that way one day. And that's and that's really what we feel. Right. Yeah. And, and he he refuses he refuses to tell you what you want to hear. Yeah. Or maybe, maybe not what I want to hear, but what what yeah. uh, what some people want to hear anyway. <laughs> yeah. Well, I mean, what an '80s pop song promises. Yeah, but it's still it's still the title, right? Mm-hmm. It's still, right. It's yeah, still, you're right. It's, it's still the title, and he still wants you to think about Ezekiel's Valley of Dry Bones. And it's the title mm-hmm. of that whole album, in fact. In fact, expects you to think about Ezekiel's Valley of Dry Bones. Right. It expects you to know it. Um. So it's. I guess hope for those who, uh, who, who, you know, he who has ears to hear, let him hear <laughs> kind of thing. Nathan, anything to add about death? No, I mean, David hit the, the parts that I was, you know, going to chime in if he didn't. So, I mean, uh, if there are other bits that you want to point to, by all means, I mean, the, the very- uh, other than, I mean, the progression, I'll, I'll go ahead and say the progression of the song, uh, strong hand of love, uh, sort of ends with this notion of, you know, the, the love is around us, even as we are approaching death. Uh, and I mean, it sort of, you know, rings in with the, the chorus of that song that, you know, it's something that is unnoticed because we are forever just pointed forward towards whatever's pulling us towards our own end. So, I mean, that, that'd be about the only thing I'd add. I mean, what would you put in there? The one I would point to is the very last song, Treasure of the Broken Land, which is very directly about death. He wrote it, I believe, after his father died. And he, he, he was having these dreams about his father. And uh, I think, for, for my money, Treasure of the Broken Land is the best pop song ever written about death. Now, how many, how many are there? I don't know. But, uh, <laughs> but it, it's, the, it's, it, it's my vote for the best one. Um, and, and he has this, he has this dream and it, it really brings together. It's, it's, it was the last song on his last album and then they put it last on, on high noon as well. And I, I think that's because it, it really sums up a lot of what he's been trying to say the whole time. I saw the city in its tortured words. You were outside the sentimental tripe you know there, there's a way to write that lyric where it is it, it it's sentimental is probably the best word i can come up with where it where it makes death into this cosmic joke where it you, you know he there's even a line um nobody gets the second chance to be the friend they meant to be and i feel like if it did if this song didn't come at the very end and he hadn't already proven himself that line could be trite, but there's nothing trite about it. This idea that his dead father and, and all of our dear dead dears, as Frederick Buechner says, have, have been relieved of a lifelong thirst, even though we're still thirsty, you know, mm. that, 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 that death just becomes part of the great mystery of human suffering until you go through it. And then, 
even then the only way he knows is dreams, right? And you have mm-hmm. the, the dry bones here again. Um, he's, he's hoping that, that they'll be brought back to life. I have to say, his version of the song is not as good as the Chagall Guevara. Nathan, you're a Steve Taylor fan, I know. Yeah. <laughs> Chagall Guevara was Steve Taylor's band in the early 90s, and they, they covered this song for the one of the Mark Hurd tribute albums, and it, uh, their, their version is just much, much better than his. It just mm. it, it's, it's much more powerful. And, and the fact that they're singing it clearly to him, you know, that, that he would have died so soon after recording it, makes I think the song even even more poignant and they, they even throw in a, a line where they after after the after blow soon upon the hollow bones they say all the way to Macon. Hmm. Which I always liked. So anyway, yeah, I think I think a lot of the songs touch on death, but I don't think any of them do it as well or as effectively as, as Treasure of the Broken Land uh does. Hmm. Well I didn't know the circumstances of that one, so that one did not stand out as much as a as as what it was that you, uh, but you oh, know, see, and the, you know, I've been listening to this for twenty years. Yeah. <laughs> so, so I mean, don't don't feel bad that I know it better than you. Yeah. Well, I I didn't know who the you was. Yeah, yeah, I, yeah. yeah. It, it, uh, supposedly it's his father. Yeah. But it doesn't need to be right. It could be anybody who died. Yeah. And I I, I think it's hard to listen to without thinking about him. Hmm. Well, especially if you like the cover better. Yeah. <laughs> awesome. Well, I have talked about a few recurring themes that I found in these songs, but obviously they're much richer than that. What else would you guys point to on High Noon that's worth our consideration? Nathan, we'll start with you, and then you can just pass it on to David when you're done. Well, my pick is entirely idiosyncratic, uh, just because I am in the process right now of designing a new literature class for the fall, and I'm going to be teaching the symposium. Uh, so Love is So Blind just struck me as a, a fun little um, Socratic takedown of some of the tropes uh, that so often accompany love songs in the 20th century. Uh, our listeners who are familiar with the symposium, and if you're not, uh, I believe Partially Examined Life is going to be doing an episode on it soon, uh, know that one of the things that Socrates does early in his contribution to that dialogue uh, is as he does, you know, take the common wisdom or the, you know, common conceptions of the concept at hand, which in that case is love, and basically does a takedown on him. Well, this song, I mean, just struck me as, you know, that same sort of move. Uh, it's a short little song. It's just three verses, and then the chorus is just "Love is so blind, it's so blind." Uh, but it's that it, it's that same sort of dynamic uh, that I enjoyed. So uh, that's the song that jumped out at me when I was listening through this album. Uh, David, what have you got to bring? Um, I liked uh, I like "Strong Hand of Love." I like the first track. Um, the 
because it's one of the very few comforting ones on there. <laughs> um, but I do like. I, although that, it ends with death, we should note. It does end with death, Ish. but that doesn't. But that doesn't. Oh mean come on! <laughs> well, if there, if you take exploding like popped balloons literally, I suppose. <laughs> um, I, well, I, I like that that the well, granted, I to what to what degree do we even take the or, we can't take the order of songs in this. Uh, Her did not the order of High Noon, as far as I know. Strong Hand of Love appears at the middle of, I think it's on Dry Bones Dance. No, it's on uh, Satellites. Anyway, it appears at the middle of whatever album it's on. It's like track number seven. Mm. Okay. So it, 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 it is not his opening salvo. Okay. Which, which is interesting, because because I listened to that first... It did characterize. It did change the character of everything I listened to after that. Hmm. If that makes sense. Um, so, so that even even in the even in the bleakest songs, you know, I'm I'm still remembering. We can laugh and we can cry and never see the strong hand of love hidden in the shadows. I'm that's that's where I'm going because that's the first Mark heard I ever heard. Me too. All right. So, so that that you know that characterizes you know my experience of listening to the rest of the songs i'm still remembering that one and and it kind of uh, means that when you when you have the ecclesiastes of the rest of the the songs there is implicit in it the presence of god yeah yeah it, it fu- functioning almost like the frame narrative of job <laughs> you know so, such that you know all of the things happening in the incredibly bleak, bleak, you know, dialogue diatribe bits um, is still nonetheless framed by a drama in which God is present, not absent. But you know, it's it kind of had that effect on me. I also liked um, I like hammers and nails. Um, there's a note of repentance at the end of it that 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 I I like or just a note about repentance. I, I I think I can read that Christologically because it's got hammers and nails in it. So there we go. Mo- mostly this was this is not the kind of stuff that I listened to. So it was uh, all all of it was incredibly interesting, and most of it I had to listen to two or three times just to kind of be like, okay, so what's going on here? Mm-hmm. So yeah, I, I didn't have access to the lyrics when I was listening to it. <laughs> and yeah, they're sometimes hard to understand. Especially yeah, hammers so, and nails. Actually, I, I was just looking at the lyrics to that, and I think it's the first time I've ever known what he's saying in a couple of those places. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So, I, 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 I dig it. 
What about you, Michael? I, I'm actually a little surprised to hear you say that Strong Hand of Love is one of the few comforting songs because I find these songs overwhelmingly comforting. And maybe part of that is I've been listening to them for so long and so they kind of give me a connection to my own past. But I think a song like Look Over Your Shoulder, which I listen to a lot when mm-hmm. um when, I, I don't know how much how much our listeners know about my life, but when we when my wife and I first got married, we moved to Tallahassee and I was unemployed for a year. And it was it was really one of the hardest times ever in my life, and it was not a whole lot of fun for her either, I don't think. I'm not sure if you can hear my depression on some of the early episodes of this podcast, in fact. Um, but I, I learned to play that song on the piano, and I, I played it all the time. Um, and I, mm. especially the, the second verse uh, really, really moved me. Look into your sad eyes and tell me what. What is left of the child who's hiding behind them? Who longs to be laughing in places of life? Who knows that the morning will follow the night? Look into your sad eyes and tell me what. I I I find his willingness to address the the deep sadness of adult life that we talked about yeah. very comforting because it, it it at least means you're not alone in experiencing it and that, that he is so honest in his voicings of it because he's not concerned with presenting an appropriate doctrine uh-huh. I, I find this music to be really as good as Christian music gets because it, it is music about faith. But because of that, it's allowed to be music about doubt and pain and depression and all these other things that people go through, whether our hymnals reflected or not, whether our uh-huh. PowerPoint presentations reflected or not, I guess I should say. Um I don't know. I, I don't know that church is the place to play Mark Hurd songs. I'm not. I'm not sure. Other than My Redeemer Lives, which which is on uh, mm-hmm. High Noon, but is of course an old hymn. Um, right. I, I'm not sure any of these would fit in in that service. But uh, I, I I know that that I have gotten an enormous amount of comfort from them over the years, and not just Strong Hand of Love, although um, that one definitely I was gonna I was gonna mention if you didn't. Well, and you make a good point there, Michael. I mean. One of the things to remember when you talk about any kind of performed music is that not all music is for church. Mm-hmm. And and moreover, I mean, church is not an all-encompassing human experience. It is one component. Yep. And by church there, I, golly, I slipped into the, the, the southern use of that word, you know, having church. Uh, I realize that we are the church because someone's going to email in and kick my butt over that. But uh, what I mean is, you know, the the gathering for the sake of the sacraments of word and table is not the all encompassing human experience. It is one component of human experience. Yeah. Right. But each individual standing in front of the rest of the congregation disassembled and bleeding is not part of the liturgy. No, absolutely. And, and, and that's what this music is for. This music is for you to cry, cry to in your bedroom when you get at home, when you get home. Mm-hmm. And to help you get up, 
you know, it, I, mm-hmm. I don't think it's self-pitying music. And 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 that's maybe a bold statement on an album that includes a song called "House of Broken Dreams," but I, <laughs> I I don't think the dominant tone even of the sad songs is self pity. I think I think it is about addressing the darkness and trying right. to walk through it. Yeah. yeah, he is getting some good sleep in that House of Broken De- Dreams. Yeah, that's true. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and and honestly, who doesn't live in one of those? Right. I mean, yeah, yeah. You know, the, I mean, the but, spiritually homeless, I suppose. <laughs> okay. Ouch. Well, no, even then. Even then. Any house. Well, uh Hurt Hurt has been dead now for more than twenty years. Uh his passing left a void in the musical world. I think it would be foolish to say that no one has filled even a part of it. So I want to close this episode with some recommendations. Nathan, who do you see in the world of music or even in the larger world of art who plows some of the same land that Heard did? Well, one of the things, uh, you know, my initial response to this would have been something like, you know, John Mellencamp or something like that, you know, someone I was listening to as a teenager who sort of scratch these same sorts of itches. But the more that I listened to this album, uh, the more I got to thinking not of a Christian musician or even a musician, but actually uh, a science fiction novelist of all people, and that's uh, William Gibson. Uh, I've talked about him before on the podcast, but the novels he was putting out, uh, the, the San Francisco trilogy for those people who know William Gibson in the early 90s, really hit on some of these same things. I mean, it is a... A, a trilogy of novels that deals with a rapid pace of change uh, that is coupled with a sort of plodding, ongoing human existence. And, you know, it, it's one of those things where, you know, the characters have these momentary human encounters, uh, but they know full well that, I mean, time is going to continue to pass. Uh, and, you know, that that's the... Uh, not over coffee reminded me that, of that a great deal, but uh, you know you don't normally think of you know science fiction novels as you know the as meditations on the problem of duration in human existence. But like I said, William Gibson's early '90s San Francisco trilogy novels uh, really remind me of that the, the names of those, by the way, I should name the novels: uh, Virtual Light, Idoru, and All Tomorrow's Parties. David, what do you have? I don't really have anything, um, which is probably a, a reflection on when I'm listening to music or just imbibing art in general. The places that Mark Hurd goes are most frequently not the places that, that I'm I'm interested in going, if that makes sense. Um, for me, uh, my companions in the dark spaces that he feels hopeful in are canonical ones. You know, I, I I go read Ecclesiastes, I go read Job, I go read Lamentations, I go read Sad Psalms. You know, that that's that's mostly where I go. Um, so I, I'm I'm afraid I'm I'm not going to be giving you that many that many things that you couldn't already get in the Gideon Bible. Not the Gideon; it doesn't have Old Testament. Well, if you're at a hotel, it does. Ah. And to me, hotels are just innately—they're just innately the place to be depressed. Talk, talk <laughs> about houses of broken dreams. <laughs> well, I want to—I want to point to a few different things. First of all, Image Image Journal, where um, 
who published that diary of a musician that David mentioned earlier is still alive and kicking. It's still the place to go, I think, for great art about faith. It's not a bunch of uh, doctrinal Christians writing stuff, but it's it's a bunch of poems and short stories and visual art that is about the realities of faith from a variety of perspectives. I have a subscription. I highly recommend everybody get one. Um, as far as musicians, uh, I want to talk about two contemporaries and somebody who I think is kind of an heir. Um, the greatest living songwriter for my money is Terry Taylor from the band Daniel Amos, who was friends with Mark Hurd, who continues to uh, forge his way in obscurity as Hurd did. He's probably best known for doing the soundtrack to a video game called The Neverhood that's not terribly similar to his music with Daniel Amos or The Lost Dogs or The Swirling Eddies or his solo records, all of which are great. They, uh, Daniel Amos just put out a new record last year that is, if Treasure of the Broken Land is not the greatest pop song about death, some of the ones on that album might be. Um, it's called uh, Dig Here Said the Angel, but all of their albums are great. Uh, except maybe their first one, and nobody's going to start there anyway. So Terry Taylor and Daniel Amos. Um, another contemporary who's outside the Christian rock world is a guy called Bruce Coburn, who I think is probably best known for a song he did in the late 70s called uh, Wondering Where the Lions Are. But uh, he he is another very... I hate to use the word honest because it seems like such a cliche. Uh, there I go being metamodern. But he he's another great... Um, honest songwriter who was willing to address the darker sides of life without without slipping into self-pity. He was also friends with Hurd. And also, actually, Daniel Amos and, Mark, and uh, Bruce Coburn both cover Strong Hand of Love for the various Mark Hurd tribute albums, uh, oddly enough. Uh, and then the person I think is kind of an heir to him is this guy, Derek Webb, who I think most of our listeners have probably heard of. Um, he's a he, he he was associated with the band uh, Cademan's Call, but now he makes solo albums that kind of question received orthodoxy in the church in a way that I think is helpful. Um, I don't think he is as strong a songwriter, but I think he does many of the things that Heard uh, did. So that's our episode on Mark Heard's High Noon. I hope it inspired at least some of you to go check him out, buy some of his records. Oh, that's a good album. Yeah. Unfortunately, awesome. uh, High Noon is out of print. But uh, I think most of the, the three albums that make it up are definitely available digitally on Amazon and iTunes and eMusic and wherever else you buy MP3s. So I, I do recommend them. Uh, what are we talking about next week? Or next week? Next month, Nathan? <laughs> <laughs> uh, next week I'm talking to Stanley Hauerwas. I just want to remind everyone of that, uh, as I will be every six hours reminding David and Michael electronically. Uh, but uh, <laughs> next month we're going to have an episode – on the patristic theologian Tertullian, and we're going to be talking about his treatise on idolatry. Sounds like a plan. In the meantime, if we left anything out, if we were too hard on uh, the Christian rock industry, or if you just want to vent about your love or hatred for Mark Hurd, you can email us at thechristianhumanist at gmail.com. Our, our, uh, our web address is christianhumanist.org. Until next month, for David Grubbs and Nathan Gilmore, this is Michael Farmer saying, let your sins be strong and let your faith be strong. Down heavens the rain from a clear